Hello, this is John Lenchner, and welcome to On Not Knowing, a series of conversations about embracing a growth mindset. Today, I'll be talking with Segev Wasserkrug from the IBM Haifa Research Lab about growing up in Israel and his abiding research interests in game theory. Welcome, Segev. Great to have you here. Thanks very much, John. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I know you grew up in Israel. Tell us a little bit about that. Growing up in Israel, for me, it was very interesting. We moved around a lot. I was born in Jerusalem. Then in, at the age of three, we moved to a kibbutz, which is a communal setting ne nearer to the northern border of Israel. This is because my father served as a physician in the army. Then after that, we moved to, to Haifa. And then following that, due to my father's career, we spent six years in South Africa after which we returned back to Israel and uh, been here ever since. And so you're six years in uh, South Africa. How old were you? Between the age of eight and 14. What were your early interests? Did you get interested in computer science at a, as a very early age or, or no? So in computer science, I got interested around the age of 12 or 13. The reason I became interested, I saw the movie War Games, which talked about an AI that, that almost started a nuclear war. It was st starred uh, Matthew Broderick, and he was sort of the computer nerd who managed to convince the AI that uh, sometimes not winning is better than trying to win the game. So that, that's actually what got, so got me hooked on computers, and then I started programming. In, in younger ages, I was always interested in sort of the mind games, chess, checkers, strategic games. I really like those types of games more than, more than others. So your interest in games actually predates that War Games movie. Yes, absolutely. And, but it's interesting that it was a cooperative game, and you sort of recognize the fact that there was potential for getting uh, optimal group results by not winning. Yes. And, uh, so that's actually a theme of your, your current research. Isn't that right? Yes, uh, absolutely. I think this is exactly as you say, John, the, the theme of not necessarily winning, but also recognizing that other participants have their own interests. And sometimes it's better to work together. Sometimes it's important to recognize that what you do may adversely imp impact what others are getting. And so ensure that what you do ultimately leads to uh, something that's beneficial for, for everyone. A working environment is a little like this. You know, we are all trying to do individually great things, but we work as teams. And so we have to figure out a way to uh, cooperate optimally. And I, it seems to me that your work could have a lot to say about optimal workforce dynamics. Have you ever thought about, about that such a thing? I think not only workforce dynamics, I think also about things such as organizational decisions. Any company has its own interests. So the goal is to grow revenue, uh, grow mindshare, whatever. Each company has its own set of goals. But ultimately, each individual also has his or her own set of goals, which they want to develop and which are mo most important to him or her. And I think what the best outcomes come to pass when these are recognized and are well aligned so that working in the company's best interest also gives the individual what he or she wants. On the other hand, when things are conflicting and one of the parties doesn't recognize that what they're doing is actually conflicting very severely with the interests of the other. That's exactly where a lot of failures come in, in, in areas such, such as being able to move strategy to execution. 
Uh, a more concrete example, say a company sets a specific strategic direction, which makes perfect sense for the company, but the individuals are not rewarded according to that direction or, or can't develop the way they want to. Because of that direction, the company doesn't recognize that, then either they'll stop contributing or move to another company, but definitely nothing good will come of it, right? Or they may continue working, but their heart will not be in it. Mm. Right I now, is, there, is it possible to, to create tools that uh, enable either the individual to realize that they're kind of drifting a, away from the central mission of the company or for the company to recognize that many people are not in sync with the mission? I think ultimately that's what we, we want to do. And I think we, we want to even suggest action. How can you make change management in a way that, you know, that is aligned, more aligned with the interest of everyone? But, and sometimes it won't be possible. But I think it's important to realize that upfront so that people can be notified. Maybe they can be helped to find new objectives or, or, or new directions. Or, or maybe the company will realize it's, it's, it, the change has too high a cost and is, is not worth making. Right. Let's dive into your work. What area of the business are you applying this multi-party cooperative game theory to? There are several areas we're looking into. I think where we began actually is, is in uh, looking at supply chain or, or business networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and business networks are very interesting because there's a strong interplay between cooperation and competition. If you think of a supply chain network, uh, this is, of course, in contrast to chess, which is a zero-sum game where there's a winner and a loser. You know, not everyone has to win or lose, such as supply chain games. There you have very interesting interplay, as I said, because uh, so, so think of a, a very simple supply chain where you have a, a wholesaler and a retailer. And the wholesaler can only sell to, to the retailer. The retailer then sells it to, to their customers and gets money, which they then transfer back to the wholesaler. Now, each on, each, uh, on, his, uh, on its own has zero value or, or even negative value because it's, it's co- it, if they don't have this agreement between them that the wholesaler sells to the, to the retailer, the retailer doesn't have anything to sell, the wholesaler doesn't have anyone to sell their uh, products to, and so both get negative because the wholesaler you know, it, uh, has to incur the cost of the production facility and, the, and so on, distribution facilities. The retailer has to incur the costs of the stores and the warehouse and so on. They both get negative. So if they don't cooperate, they get nothing. But so they have to cooperate in order to, to, to get something. So here it's exactly the same, John. They either both lose or they both get something out of it. Then once they agree, so they have this contract between them and, and assuming that there is sort of finite markets, limited number of customers that the retailer can sell to, then you can think of it as a fixed value, right? So a, a maximum value that the, that the network as a network can, can obtain. And so then the question becomes, and this is where the competitive aspects come in, how do they divide the value between themselves? Mm-hmm. And there, there's a lot of interesting work on what's, what can they reveal, what shouldn't they reveal, should they be truthful in order to ensure that each maximizes their individual benefit from the, the overall value. That they both get together. I see. And I know that there's some extremely paradoxical examples here where uh, players can cooperate, especially a retailer and a wholesaler can uh, cooperate, but the surprising effect is not so great from the customer's point of view. Yeah, exactly. So, so one, one of the things that when you talk to people working in the supply chain area, they say the most important thing for us is to reduce wastage. What they mean, again, looking at the very concrete example of the retailer and the, and the wholesaler, Say the retailer sells dairy products, which have a set expiry date, 
And so they want to minimize the amount of dairy products that they throw out. Because if people don't uh, don't come and they don't buy the dairy products, the expiry dates pass it and they have to throw them out. And of course, that costs them money. So everyone will tell you that the most important issue troubling supply chains is the wastage issue that's not throwing anything out. So, so say now that the retailer and the wholesaler have this contract between them on how much it costs them. So the retailer, for example, say, uh, commits to the wholesaler, I will buy from you. 10,000 cartons of milk uh, a day, and you, you will uh, sell it to me per, say, 50 cents per, per carton, something like that. So the retailer wants to reduce wastage. So they come to someone like IBM and say, build us a, a model that enables us to optimize so we can do, give us a better forecast of our demand so that we can waste less. So IBM comes and gives a, a great forecast of this demand. And now the retailer can use this forecast to make better decisions. Now I can reduce my milk. I don't need 10,000 cartons for the same time period. I just need 8,000. And this will cause me to throw away less. So, so that's just ignoring the, the wholesale. Okay, so great. So we reduced the, we reduced the wastage. We got really great savings because now we only have to purchase 8,000. Now we reduced the wastage. Previously, say we threw away 2,500 cartons on average. Now we can throw just throw away 500, say on average. So we save a lot of money, but then the, the wholesaler comes and says, wait, I can't sell you 8,000 cartons for the same price. You're now cutting into my profit line. So that, what could happen is that the wholesaler raises the price, which is an unforeseen occurrence. And this is an example of what could happen when the retailer doesn't take into account the objectives of the other party. And what's interesting, I think, is that we all have this tendency to sort of put blinders, just think, just assume that the world around us will not change except for our decision. I think what, what game theory and the multi-party aspect shows is that your decisions, because they have an impact on the objectives of other players, may cause the other players now to make better decisions, and you may enter into this vicious cycle where you're both chasing your own tail, trying to figure out what the best thing to do is. So in this case, now, the wholesaler will increase their price, and that increased price will be passed on to the customer. So the surprise is that despite being more efficient in their use of milk, the customer ends up paying a higher price for their milk. Right, or, or the retailer. <laughs> okay, so the, who, who does the retailer optimally have to think of? I imagine the retailer is making more money in this scenario. But are they concerned with the, the ultimate price to the consumer or not? So first, yes, they're, they're concerned with the ultimate price to the consumer. It's not clear that you know the retailer will be so quick in raising the price due to the fact that consumers may opt to leave and go to other uh, competing retailers. The other issue is we talked about milk, which is a basic product, but it could be luxury product. And so it could be that the market shrinks because less people are buying. This is another example. So now the retailers raises the price for the customer. Mm -hmm. So again, you, you go into this, this vicious cycle. A way to address this, and there has been work in the space, is rather than having a fixed price, agree on a profit sharing scheme. And theoretically, it can be shown that the profit sharing scheme always aligns the interests of both parties. I get whatever I get, 20% I pass on to you. The retailer says whatever customers buy, 20% pass on to you. So, so that's optimal for all parties. It's shown to optimize for the customers. It's shown to optimize for the retailer and the wholesaler. That's the best that they, that they can do for any setting. So this type of agreement of, of uh, value sharing. Okay, but how do the parties agree on uh, the value sharing? There's a lot of work on how, they, on how to agree on the value sharing. There's also 
many other issues associated with that because, for example, for Verishen to work, both parties have to be truthful. So, for example, the retailer has to be truthful about how many people are actually buying the milk uh, because that's not information that's typically known. The wholesaler has to be truthful about their production costs because you're talking about profit. And, and that means that there has to be enough profit passed on to the wholesaler to make it worthwhile for them. This is exactly what putting research. How can we have practical algorithms to enable people to make these decisions? But often the first step or a large step in solving a problem is recognizing it exists. And I think I the first step is to to explain and to make sure all parties understand when making decisions, they simply have to take into account the objectives of the other parties involved in, in the process. Is there a simple example from our everyday life, not from supply chain, where this kind of thing comes uh, to the fore or no? Where we just think about ourselves and forget about the interests of others and uh, it's to everybody's harm. It kind of ends up being like a prisoner's dilemma type thing. Yeah, there are a couple of additional examples, right? So, so one example is was related to exactly what's happening now with the COVID situation. We'll think of a government asking or, or, or imposing a lockdown. Mm-hmm. If you say everyone's going to follow a lockdown, so for me individually, there's absolutely no risk in going out because <laughs> I'm not going to meet anyone. Everyone be in their houses. But everyone thinks that, so everyone goes out, and now suddenly everyone's outside. So that's uh, exactly, and, and this actually, if you analyze it from a game theoretic perspective, it's, it's pretty clear that this is happening because there's this notion of a single deviation or changing decision by a single party is not, is not beneficial, this is, which is what, what you want to get to. But here, clearly, if everyone is in lockdown, just a single individual changing their decision is clearly beneficial to that individual right. because no one wants to be in lockdown. Okay, so this is a non-stable equilibrium. Exactly. So it's a non-stable setting. So so just saying everyone stay in lockdown will not work. You have to give the people additional incentives to stay in lockdown or very strict penalties for not following, right? Which is dangerous. Yeah, we haven't hit upon the ultimate solution there. There's tensions in every country. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I got to have a question for you. Is there a big open question in your field. I work in uh, theory and the big open question, the P equal MP question, is there an analog in, in game theory or no? I don't know of any single analog. I think there are many large uh, open questions. Mm. First is, are we even talking about the right solution concept? This notion of equilibrium that 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 a deviation by a single person is cannot be de- be beneficial to that person. Mm-hmm. That's of the current standard notion. But there are many cases where it's clear that this is not the right approach. So, so, so let me interrupt. So the approach of looking for an equilibrium that's stable, in which no individual has the incentive to misbehave in any sense. Yeah. Okay. Th- that's sort of the current accepted, exactly. That's the current accepted, but it's clear mm-hmm. there are situations where this does not work because maybe parties collaborate, maybe they have multi, multi-party deviations and so on. So mm-hmm. it's been start, trying to, to extend that. The other is that there, there could be multiple such stable points. Mm-hmm. And so what could happen is that even if people are able to, or parties are able to calculate the stable points, maybe everyone is targeting a different stable point. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately the outcome may not be stable. A third issue is that often to compute a stable point, it's impossible you know, to always compute an equilibrium. And so the, the, the big question is, Say, you know, you're saying I'm trying to get to an equilibrium, but maybe someone else, because they, they know they can't get to an equilibrium, 
are, are working towards a very different solution concept. What happens in that setting, right? When I people sort of are aiming, what makes it complex is that because there are different parties and you don't know what, what each party will do, and there could be multiple sort of targets, multiple sta- stable points. It, you want everyone to sort of aim their arrows to on this, at the same target, but you don't nice. know. People could be aiming their arrows at different targets. So, so what happens in, in that case? So actually, we're running a bit out of time. So we always uh, have a growth mindset-themed question that we ask our guests. So today, the question for you, uh, Segev, is the following. Was there ever a time where you were charging full steam ahead in your life or your work, and then something happened to force you to reevaluate the direction you are headed. Sure. So, so actually, as you said, John, I, I, was, I was raised in Israel. In Israel, there's a mandatory military service. And so as, as a part of that service, there's a, a screening process. And when I was younger, and I think this is natural for, for many people, we always sort of believed or like to have the feeling that there's, uh, there are people who know what they're doing, that you know, they don't make mistakes, and, and, and we could rely on. So I went through the screening process, which included a set of, a set of exams. And at one point in time, uh, uh, someone came in and called out a set of names. And one of them was mine and asked us to stop doing the, the testing and come to the front of the class. And, and I looked around and I saw that besides myself, everyone else whose name was called out was, was either an Orthodox Jew or, uh, or was, a, was a woman. And so I asked, are you sure that there hasn't been some mistake, mistake made here? And he said, no, don't worry. The army knows what it's doing. Everything is organized. Everything is okay. And I said, the assumption was that, yes, it's in the, the, there's, there's someone you can rely on that will not make mistakes, that you can count on, and so on. I said, okay, and I went home. And what turned out uh, a couple of months later that my gender was incorrect in the, in, the, <laughs> in, the, in the army computer. And so I was listed as the woman. And so, when, and, 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 you know, and people just followed what the computer said. They got up and they said, give those names. And so luckily I wasn't impacted by that because it was still in time to go uh, through the chosen track, which was to become a, a technical officer. So I still had time you know, to, to take all the testing required and so on. But for example, if I had wanted to, become a pilot and try out for the pilot training program, I would have missed out on that opportunity just because of that mistake being made. Okay, by a, tech, by a technical um, enlisted person, that means you're working on uh, like technical computer problems and things yeah, like that? Yeah, it, it means that first I go to, you know, to university, get my uh, degrees, and then I start working in a professional capacity um, as an officer, and I chose computer science as, as we began. And so the, the outcome of that for me was to realize that, yes, that everyone can make mistakes. So ultimately, there's no replacement for your own common sense and your own intuition and to, and to always question assumptions and so on. But I think it's always very important also to remember that when you say everyone can make mistakes, that you are, that you are a part of that everyone, mm-hmm. right? It's not everyone can make mistakes except me. And so, I, of course, you have to move forward with, with assurance and confidence and so on. You also have to always take into account the fact that you might be the one who's now making the mistake. Okay, right? then. That's a question for you then. Is there a memorable uh, mistake that you've made? Something that you were totally sure of that, that turned out to be wrong? Yes. Okay. I worked in IBM. I worked, worked in the area of water networks. And we created this really great model and then we could take that simulation model as input and create an optimization model and then give recommendations on how to optimally set pumps and valves in the network so as to, so as to optimize the network. 
And we were absolutely sure that this was the way to go, you know, that, that many water networks will buy this and use this and so on. But what it turned out is that water networks uh, would, much, would much rather uh, take and physically change the network and put in valves so that they can manage the network manually easier rather than rely on some software or, or rely on some recommendations. Hmm. There was a, a, an analytical solution produced by another company, not, not by us, that could help you manage that much quicker. It didn't require any modeling, didn't require anything else. You could just install it. It would gather data, start learning automatically, and then help you manage your network. This was something that really, really, really we spent huge amounts of time on developing this technology and so on as a team. And then it turned out that if we'd gone with a much simpler solution, good enough and not perfect, uh, probably would have had a better chance of of making, making our mark. Interesting. Okay, so you never considered this uh, simple thing of adding valves, right? Manual valves. Okay. Exactly. So, uh, uh, so that did that lesson ever in, inform your subsequent uh, career? Absolutely. One of the things I'm working on, as you say, is game theory, but another uh, large amount of my time is exactly on this work. Ever since I've been thinking about, okay, how do we, you know, how do we create analytical solutions? How do we create optimization solutions that are much easier for less skilled people to, to deploy and use. Mm-hmm. So people who don't have an optimization background, people that so you don't need to build a model, exactly, there are always trade-offs in life. And the natural in- inclination of ever, anyone working in this area of optimization is to look for the best theoretical solution, mm-hmm. but often isn't the right answer. First, someone once said, every, every model is wrong, some models are useful. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you go to the optimal, typically there's something that will prevent it from actually being used in the real world. So you need to tweak it anyway so that people can actually implement it. And so that puts you sort of at one corner. But, but so, of course, you, you have to trade off. So we're trying to do something that's simpler. So what we're trading is we're trading exactly this of not going to the optimal, but going to a solution that's good enough that says, OK, I can do better than the way you're currently making decisions without this, without this software. Right. And I think circling back to where we began, to, to the game theory, I think that's, that may be exactly what the answer is as well. So maybe the right answer is not target the theoretical equilibrium concept, but just show cases in which when you consider the interests of other parties and do it in, in a way that, it, that is principled, you get better results than if you ignore them as, as is what typically happens now. Right. I think as human beings, we behave this way all the time. There's a term called satisficing, right? You may have heard it. And so exactly. we don't satisfice. We don't uh, optimize. We just do something that's good enough that is explainable in some way to, our, exactly. to ourselves. And we go with that. Yeah, exactly. And I think what we need to do with AI is just, to, is just find satisficing solutions which are better than what can currently be done without, without AI. Right. Okay, well, great. Thanks, Segev. It's been a wonderful and enlightening uh, discussion. I've definitely learned a few things about game theory. Uh, and yeah, good luck to you and your team and your future research. Thank you. And thank you very much, Sean. I also enjoyed this a great deal. So that wraps up today's episode of I'm Not Knowing. A big thanks to our producer, Andy Aaron. I'm John Lenchner, and thanks for listening. <laughs>